Hello. Hey, Nestor. Hello. Good morning. Yeah, this is Christian. How are you? I'm doing great. And, and Joe. Hi, Joe. So this is actually, this is our second Nestor Davidson paper, although it's our first Nestor Davidson conversation on the pod. That's true. Because, Interesting. Because we talked with Ethan about the regal prudence it, I paper. Think, I think it's pronounced regular prudence. Um, I, I will say that Ethan and I had a debate about that. I don't know that we've actually resolved it canonically. Oh, a debate um, about how to pronounce it, not a debate about whether it was okay that he talked to us and I, you didn't. I think, <laughs> I, I, think, I think Ethan actually mentioned this debate. I have to go back and listen. But, Nestor, how do you pronounce the title of that paper? Uh, I think I pronounce it regular prudence. With, with the law, the kind of the French law in the middle. Yeah, exactly. No. Sort of a Stephen Colbert version of it. <laughs> no, I don't, I, I don't what, accept that. What do you call it? Regal prudence. Oh, my. That is, that's gross. It is gross. Look, <laughs> I didn't come up with the damn title. These guys did. I, I can't. There's Ethan no one... did. I, we can blame Ethan for that one. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean. It, it, Ethan would accept that. Blame Ethan is always a decent Regal strategy. prudence is so bad that Oira prudence is actually better, and that's staggering. <laughs> uh, Ethan and I actually had a bet uh, over a drink about whether, given the oddity of the title, anyone would actually cite the paper. Um, and then he went out and kind of, I think, you know, twisted some arms just so he could win the bet. <laughs> and, and he got the, page, uh, the paper featured in America's Faculty Colloquium. It's kind of leading faculty colloquium podcast. Yeah, better so. than any citation. <laughs> I mean, hell. Uh, but I, but I, um, and, and you cited the paper in this, in the paper we're going to talk about today, Nestor. It's true. It's true. If you, if, if you really want to be sure someone's going to cite your work, you just have to cite it yourself. That yeah. has been my strategy. And this one really, I think you were looking at necessity in this instance, where, <laughs> um, given the title. But no, uh, we, we, so we, we have Nestor back for the second Nestor paper, and this one has no co-author. And what a fascinating paper. I don't, I don't know you. how we want to get into this, but like, you know, I teach land use, I teach property. I know how I want to get into it. Oh, you do? Okay, yeah. well, then I'm not even going to start with my setup. Let's cool. Just, let's go, um, Joe. <laughs> well, I, I'm interested to hear what, what got Nestor uh, into the topic sort of biographically. My, my guess is, although he'll, he's going to tell us in a minute, my guess is it's the, it's the soda case. But what drew me to the title and to the topic once I read the abstract is I'm teaching this seminar next semester on on marijuana markets that are developing, uh, both mm. in medical marijuana and in and in uh, recreational marijuana, and this is an area where uh, state and and local, because of public health and police, uh, state and local uh, administration are are really proving quite critical to the way these marijuana markets are developing. And there's a parallel in the hyper localism of the post-prohibition uh, alcoholic beverage control regimes that developed uh, after uh, 1932. So for, to me, local administration and state administration are, are just very important to a bunch of stuff I've been thinking about and reading about lately, and that's what drew me to the topic. Now, neither, neither of those things, alcoholic beverage control nor marijuana control, come up in your paper, although you could imagine uh, someone pursuing this line of thinking and, and writing extensively about it from that perspective. But, but I'm in, just curious to hear what drew you to it. Great. And, and one of the things I think, I hope, is interesting about the topic is once you lay out the basic territory, there are so many issues that I didn't have the space to cover where I do think this is relevant, uh, and probably more so now as the burden of 
regulation and policymaking may be shifting more local, but we can certainly talk about that later. I'd say the, the, the project had three origins for me. One was just my practical experience in affordable housing. Uh, I spent some time at the Department of Housing and Urban Development in D.C., and then I was on a local public housing authority board when I lived out in Boulder, Colorado. And watching housing policy and law play out, it's largely through these interesting agency structures. And, and, and there, there's a fairly direct relationship in many policy areas between the feds and the locals, something else I've written a little bit about. Um, but thinking about how that policy gets implemented, it really happens a lot at the local level. The second thing was I also teach land use, and I have always found it a little bit unusual or odd or, or just worth noting to my students when I get to non-delegation, which, uh, as you know, at the federal level is not entirely a dead letter, but it, it, it's kind of federal ad law 101 that non-delegation doesn't really have much strength at the federal level, that you can have incredibly open-ended delegations uh, that agencies uh, can survive challenges on. Um, obviously, lots of other grounds to challenge agency action, but non-delegation really doesn't have much traction at the federal level. But you, you get into local administration, particularly in the land use context. And I talk about the Kosalka case in, in the article. Uh, and suddenly you see a really vibrant doctrine. And I always thought that was a kind of really interesting juxtaposition. Um, and when you you have students in land use who've also taken ad law, that sort of pops out at them really starkly. Uh, and I really wanted to explore what might be happening that we have courts, mostly state courts at the local level, policing these boundaries a little bit more vigorously, and in some cases much more vigorously than we do federal courts at the federal level and, and federal agency. And then, of course, the, the soda case, the portion cap case was the thing that really spurred me to finally put the thing to paper and actually write it because I thought it was it was not a great decision um, and reflected a pretty deep level of skepticism about expertise, about uh, kind of local political process, about what the agency itself was doing. And I thought that was worth exploring a bit in a little bit more of a systematic way. All right. That's the way you wanted to start, Joe. And I think that's a great way. I, I also want to start by t saying basically what the topic is. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, pshaw. I know. I know. For those of you following along at home. <laughs> no, I, you know, the papers in the show notes and in the descriptions in the right. show notes. But I, I think it would be, you know, it, it's such a like you're putting your finger, Nestor, in this paper on the fact that local governments, just even viewing a single local government is to view a sometimes sprawling set of administrative agencies and uh, and uh, there's a legislature there or there are things which are like courts so th there's an entire kind of uh, there's an entire like administrative law world within each of these uh, jurisdictions and and as you point out in the paper even that i forget the name of that small is it parker texas i forget the one that you cite yeah. but uh, <laughs> has how many has you know dozens of of i think dozens i think 30 something different boards and and commissions and different sorts of things so basically decision-making structure is what we might just call generically institutions. And and so even small towns of several thousand people might have a small administrative law world within them. And these are worlds in which there is something like a legislature, which is elected by the people, which passes things which are like laws. And those laws can either do things directly and be enforceable in institutions called courts, or they can 
uh, create rules which are administered by other local boards, and then those boards can do things which pass things to other boards or back to the legislature. You know, there's this whole world. And this world of administration and its complexity is, you know, even if, like, my mental models are, are a little bit... Um, a little bit weird because you know I grew up in in New England mostly and and so to me it's there's a there's a few selectmen there's the town meeting um and that's very simple and seems very flat right but but of course there's the zoning office and there's the whatever office and the, so even in those towns there's there is administration and that that's within that singular kind of governing body it kind of if you look inside of that singular governing body you see multiple institutions. And as Nestor points out, you can also have single purpose governments which overlap, right? These, uh, the, the local water district or something. And then there's, of course, the state government and then there's the county. Right. And, and, uh, and, and so it's really um, what we call administrative law. And this is, I think, one of the chief aims of the paper, right, is that what, when people study administrative law, they typically study federal administrative law. Sometimes they'll throw in some state administrative law as well. Right. But there are thousands of governments in the United States yeah. And each of them has uh, has these characteristics, and and by studying their both their similarities and their differences in institutional form and in doctrine, maybe each discipline, local government, and 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 administrative law have something to teach one another. Now, this happens throughout law school, right? That I mean, we're all law professors, so we know it's you know in, in the evidence class they're studying federal rules of evidence, right? So it's called evidence, but it's really federal rules of evidence. That's pretty much what the class is about. Civil procedure is really federal civil procedure. Uh, administrative law is really federal administrative law. Um, and, and, and it's interesting to sort of stop yourself and think, okay, but what am I not looking at? If I, if I look there, what am I not looking it's at? It's kind of an economy of scale and, and that this is a good template. Like once you understand these, the principles that will be elucidated through the law in this particular area, it'll be easier for you to go learn right. Montana civil procedure or Montana admin law. I mean, but Nestor, I take a part of what you're doing here is to say is to say that that's not it's not just enough to learn the federal template. Right. That's it. These administrative structures are really different and it's worth paying attention to. One of the examples you've already pointed to is the non-delegate so-called non-delegation doctrine. Um, anyway, how have we done so far in kind of framing this up? Uh, phenomenally. Uh, <laughs> I wish I had you at every job, every talk <laughs> I gave on the paper. You've described it uh, much better than I ever did. Um, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the challenges in uh, in the paper itself was the tremendous variety you see. I think the statistic I cite in the paper is that there are roughly 90,000 local governments and they come in all sorts of flavors. You have a, a New York City that looks on its surface a lot like the federal government. You have a mayor and he's got a lot of independent power. Uh, you have the city council looks a lot like a traditional federal or state legislature. Um, you don't have local courts per se, although you do have some. You have some city courts. Um, you have mostly state courts that focus on the local level. But you have a, an administrative apparatus that, that is large, sophisticated, um, dozens and dozens of agencies. And if you were just to map federal administrative law onto New York City, you'd see a lot of similarities. Um, but, but New York is an outlier in some way. Um, and, and you have all these other really interesting variations that look very different from what you see at the federal level. And I think the first sort of aim of the paper was really to point that out, uh, to, to, to kind of surface this context in which uh, this vast regulatory state uh, plays out. And I think at one point the article was called the administrative city state. Hmm. Um, uh, and, and I, I was persuaded to back away from that, but, 
Um, but but that's like always that, been actually. what. Um, maybe I'll I'll write a follow up at some point and, and actually use that. But um, but that's you know there's sort of a, 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 a deep descriptive project here um, to say to local government types and some folks uh, I hope I acknowledge this well enough in the paper are looking within the black box of local governments. But a lot of what local government scholars focus on are broader questions of of authority and boundaries and the state-local relationship and the nature of local governance, and less in the institutional way that I think uh, should be a part of an additional part of that dialogue. And and again, as you point out, uh, you know, most people who write in mainstream ad law, some of them pay attention to, to the states, and that's great, but very, very few people look sort of, as I say in the paper, sort of turn the knob on the microscope one more notch and actually look at the local level. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening there. And in part, it's because state government form and state government institutions largely mimic the federal arrangement, right? You've got a governor, you've got executive agencies, you've got a legislature, you've got courts. And even though they're elected courts, there's the the sort of tripartite structure with agencies within the executive and the governor sort of exerting a kind of important and powerful supervisory control that really mimics the federal pattern at the state largely right largely i mean there are some interesting variations as well you have a there's some great uh literature on for example uh the fact that that you have state wide officials separately elected mm-hmm. uh from the governor creates all sorts of interesting internal conflicts about a multiple uh, executive branch at the state level. And in the paper, I, again, had a kind of design choice about the extent to which I was going to focus on the states as an intermediate. It is, it's absolutely right that, it, that, that states, by and large, are much closer to, uh, to the federal structure uh, institutionally. But you get some variations. And when I presented the paper, uh, I would frequently get the comment what about the states? You should really lay out all the variations. And, you know, it's already too long of a paper. <laughs> um, and I thought if I really try and grapple with even some of the main variations at the state level, uh, do you have an elected state AG? Do you have a separately elected lieutenant governor? Things like that. Mm. Do you have a unicameral legislature? The paper would be twice as long. And I think it's a sharper contrast. I hope it's a sharper contrast to begin with the sort of two outer poles of, of, of mainstream federal-focused administrative law and then try and contrast that and, and compare it as well to the local level. You know, you know when I teach um, estates and land and, and property, Nestor, I, you know, I have several minds about it um, because students can overstudy that area a lot because those estates problems can be, um, you know, these are things like fee simple and all yeah. that. You, you, right. you can be right or wrong. And because it's one of those things about which you can clearly be right or wrong, students will know that they don't know it. And then they'll, they'll put way too much time into studying it yeah. relative to other things where it's less clear that they don't know, you know. So anyway, I, I approach it as we're trying to learn a field guide. You know, there are basically, you know, 20 different kinds of birds and they have these features and we're trying to identify them. Right. And here's right. the field guide. And then we're going to get some examples. We're in the wild. They look a little bit different. We'll identify them in the wild. So, you know, one approach you could take to all of this is to develop a field guide to administrative forms, <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> un- unlike the estates and land, of which there are, you know, maybe a couple dozen, depending on how you put them together, what you point out in this paper is there are probably thousands of ways that you can put together these different kinds of forms into different sorts of governments. 
And absolutely. And, and once you include the states in that, I mean, as you point, if, even if you were just for, to write an article about federal and state administrative law and to identify what's distinctive about certain state forms, I mean, that's to do that field guide style would be a huge undertaking to throw in all of this would be. And so instead, what the, the approach that the paper takes, I think, is to indicate slightly more descriptively in places you call it empirically, distinctive features of local administrative forms, it, it, in, in particular, those features which exemplify certain kinds of, of problems of smaller scale government governance exactly. and the importance of smaller scale governance. And, you know, one of the things I do when I teach land use um, is, is to emphasize that, you know, we're going to look at a lot of disputes that look like small potatoes in some ways, right? You know, they're rezonings or something like that. But the fact is, as, as exercised as people get about major issues, which are really important, things like abortion, right? Uh, yeah. Think even things like you know um, healthcare, you know what, whatever else, right? All of these things people have very strong opinions about, and will argue about, and even in friendships on Facebook over, right? <laughs> but if you really want to turn people out and make them give up time they would have at home watching TV or being with their family, and come out and, and yell at people, you know, go to a local, <laughs> go to a so local planning commission meeting, right? right? <laughs> All right. And, and Absolutely. So, and so, uh, so, so both in terms of the diversity of forms. Uh, local government is interesting, but also in the degree to which it actually impacts people's everyday lives. And you can see that both in, you know, schooling and all the different kinds of things that local government does. You can say, in fact, a lot of what people do in their day-to-day lives is affected by this. But you can also look at the people's behavior themselves and, you know, how do they respond to these things. And it turns out that although oftentimes they are passive and may not know who their local representatives are in city government, when things matter, they turn out and, and vociferously. So, so that's another aspect that you – it's not as though the paper is just about, you know, this is a way of better understanding administrative structure because look at all these interesting examples we have. Right. All of these rare birds, right, which we can learn something about the birds we really care about by studying these rare birds, which are not actually all – it's not that, right? It's like these are really, really important governmental forms because of the impact they have on people's lives and they are understudied. Absolutely. And I don't know what the right metaphor – maybe they're pigeons, but they're, they're really all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> Um, and, and I do think it's easy to, to forget what is right in front of you. Um, and I do, I actually think there's a lot to what local government scholars spend a lot of time telling their students, putting in their papers, which is this is the level of government that really shapes our day-to-day lives. And, and I was a land use lawyer. I've been to those meetings. People get incredibly passionate. They come out, they, uh, they, they fight. It, you know, there's a really interesting puzzle I don't go into in the paper um, but other people have written about about the lack of political participation at the local level. Uh, people don't vote for mayor at, at, at that high a level. Um, part of that has to do with the lack of partisan political structures at the local level. There's some David Slyker's done some really interesting work here and others. But um, but I do think people engage and I hope I bring this out a bit in the paper, um, not just with land use, which, of course, they do, but policing yeah. with education um, with, with certainly, uh, uh, you know, you want to start a, a major local fight, you, you change the rules on, uh, uh, you know, the health code for restaurants and people will be up in arms. Um, and, and it's a very immediate level of regulation. It's not someone 2000 miles away at an agency you can barely pronounce. It's, uh, you know, it's the, it's the agency down the street and it's changing how you can open your business and where you can build your home. And, and lots of things that are there and where your kids go to school and the quality of that education and things that are really incredibly 
of a moment. Let me come back to the, the, the point about variations. I think, I, I hope in the paper that I, I have laid out what I think are some of the more salient uh, and, and, and getting that level of generality is, is, is a little tricky, but, um, but I do talk about partly this, the permeability at the local level. I mean, uh, you know, uh, zoning. Uh, if you've ever been in front of a zoning board, it's people who show up once a month. Uh, typically, they are real estate agents and sometimes law professors and um, <laughs> ordinary citizens. And, and they've been delegated lots and lots of authority over really important decisions. Uh, same of school boards, it's same of, uh, and you can say the same about lots of local institutions. And so there's this boundary issue that you get into at the local level uh, about what is the public domain and what is the private domain that I think is very interesting. Uh, I do think the nature of local expertise can be different. I do think there are agencies, and I point this out in the paper, uh, like the, the Department of Health here in New York that are incredibly expert, that, that are national leaders in their regulatory areas. But there are a lot of agencies at the local level that really exist to aggregate uh, local preferences. And that's something that, that I think is really important and we don't pay enough attention to. Um, there are things that are the same about administrative law, no matter what level of government you're in, same norms about notice and the opportunity to participate. But I do think you have some really interesting variations when you start to look at how this plays out institutionally at the local level. I'm interested in, to get at those variations, the, the one that struck me in the paper as being the most far removed was the one with which you began, which was this non-delegation mm -hmm. idea and how that plays out in contemporary, maybe it's zoning in particular where you, where yep. you see this crop up, but... And we should uh, say what that is when you get a chance. You, sure, but well, sure. say what say what you want to say, Christian. But I, I want us to drill down on that one as the example. Yeah, because you know we could do the ten hour version of the conversation, <laughs> which I would love, but yeah. I don't think Nestor <laughs> has time for today. But so I want to drill down on one of the issues to try to see, and that's the one that struck and me as the most dramatically yeah. different. And maybe we could do it in the context of sugary sodas, because I think a, a specific example helps too. To yeah, the the sugary soda case at least didn't really involve. No, we can talk about it in general, and we could even non delegation. Point, we could even but, imagine that you know New York, which may be sui generis for some of the reasons that Nestor, you know, if you're going to draw lessons about administrative structures of local governance using like the biggest city in the in the nation, may be misleading. Although Nestor, as you point out. It's not as misleading as people think because of, you know. That's right. Well, the non-delegation stuff he referenced, he cited cases in Maine, if yeah. I remember yeah, correctly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. I, I remember because I am a son of Maine. And so uh, <laughs> I think examples from Maine, which, believe me, does not have America's largest city or anything close to America's <laughs> largest city, um, that, that would be a fine representative example mm -hmm. rather than a, a, a typical example. Great. Let me talk about non-delegation in general and let me talk about the Kasalka case, which I talk about in the article. So... Uh, non-delegation as a general matter was a very vibrant doctrine at the federal level until the New Deal revolution at the Supreme Court. And the basic idea is that if a public body, if a legislative body rather, is going to delegate to an executive agency to fill in the interstices of a statutory regime, they have to have clear enough guidance so that they're not illegitimately exercising lawmaking authority outside of the legislative arena. And actually, there's a variety of non-delegation that involves delegation to public entities. And that's most of the cases we see. There's another variation that involves delegation to private bodies 
There aren't that many cases along those lines, but that's an area at the federal level where the courts have actually continued to police uh, a little bit more rigorously. Uh, and, and, and at the federal level, really since the mid 30s, it has become black letter law that if you have a fairly open ended delegation, you say to the federal communications, the Congress says to the Federal Communications Commission, regulate the airwaves in the public interest. Uh, that's generally sufficient to signal that this administrative agency has enough authority to make rules binding with the force of law in building a regulatory regime. And there are lots of formal and functional reasons why uh, that's the foundation in many ways of the modern administrative state. So, so this Kasalka case gives you a very Can I, can I interrupt for just, because yeah. I want to I unpack something before we go to the state sure. domain. So, so you mentioned sort of two grounds on which uh, you might develop a legitimacy concern or a legitimacy suspicion. One sounds like a delegation to a public body. There's no private party involvement. It's just this public body. Right. And, and I'm wondering why that might engender suspicion if you're a court, for example, and you're policing this uh, legislature executive thing. And then separately, why once there's private involvement, you might be suspicious in an independent way from the first way. What do you, what's your theory or your or sense of why each of those things might engender suspicion on the part of a judge? I think on the public side, it really is a question of the ability of a legislative body to give up its lawmaking power. And so if you think about it, the basic structure of the federal three-branch government we have is that you have a one body that makes the law, one body that enforces the law, and one body that... Uh, uh, interprets the law. And obviously we know in practice, there are lots of complications to that over simplified model. But I think the original legitimacy concerns had to do with Congress uh, giving up its, its original power in some sense. So saying to the executive, not only will you take care that the laws be enforced, but we will give you the power, uh, you, the FCC or HUD or fill in the blank agency, to actually in the first instance say what the law is. And I think uh, in a classic formalist sense that used to raise a lot of concerns. I think as a pragmatic matter though, that happens every day of the week now in the administrative state. It happens both in filling in the details, which of course as complex as the regulatory state has become, administrative, administrative agencies have to do all the time, but even beyond that, in taking an open-ended command from the legislature to go and solve a problem, federal agencies are now tasked with coming up from the beginning with regimes that create a structure, that, that make policy choices. And I think originally that was uh, uh, troubling. I think that has become less so in, in mainstream administrative law, again, as a matter of black letter law. The variation when you get the private parties involved is, is, is really the legitimacy of a non-governmental actor exercising governmental authority. Uh, and, and there you can imagine the various advisory committees or uh, entities that are uh, privatized but quasi-governmental in some sense. Those tend to be the kinds of cases that come up in that context uh, at the federal level. And I, there, I think the legitimacy concern is pretty straightforward. Uh, there are concerns about capture corruption, about the basic boundary 
of who exercises power on behalf of the state. Um, and, and I think, you know, that uh, seems pretty straightforward to me. I think it gets more complicated when you have structures at the local level where the clear line between what is public and what is private tends to blend a little bit. Uh, and that's been an interesting theme in the practice and literature about local governments in general. Local governments have many origins, but, but one origin is as corporate entities. In New York, the uh, head lawyer is still the corporate counsel, corp counsel. And there's a corporate law origin to some aspects of local government in the United States. Uh, we have a kind of multiple birth for, for local governments. Some of them really were delegated sovereign entities from the states, but many of them were company towns that were established and then absorbed into states as states were formed. And we still have a little bit of a background radiation uh, <laughs> happening uh, at the local level where, where that ambiguity about is, uh, is a local government uh, a corporate entity? Is it acting in a proprietary capacity? And as I talk about very briefly in the paper, but there's a pretty big literature on there's there's lots of law and, and conceptualization about um, should we really think about local governments as mini sovereigns? Should we think about them as administrative bodies that are just convenient delegations from the state as arms of the state that primarily function as one? Um, my colleague Aaron Sega wrote a paper about cities as a form of agency choice. So you could create a state level agency or you could create a local mm. agency and you might call it a city. I don't necessarily agree with his perspective on this, but it's an intriguing way to think about what it is that local governments might be doing. And, and that tension plays out in some of the doctrine. And I try and I try and connect that tension here to what's happening when you have a local administrative body that is staffed or at least partially staffed by just ordinary citizens. And I think that's what was really, or at least that's one of the things that was happening in this, this Board of Zoning Appeals case. And I think that's at least an element of why state courts reviewing delegations to these zoning boards tend to be a little bit suspicious. So zoning boards where people, you know, where, where, the, where the members, this is not their job. So non-professionals, exactly. right? And the benefit is they're representing a, a slice of society or, or multiple slices of society because you got a real estate agent, a teacher, a whatever on there. And, <laughs> and uh, exactly. I, I remember, you know, before I went to law school, I was, I was a bit of an activist and showed up at a zoning board of adjustment hearing over a, a plan to basically channelize a, a creek and was arguing against a variance and there were legal standards and I was citing that legal standard. And there was, there was one member of that zoning board who was a real estate developer and I think knew the developer and suggested that they vote to approve the variance. And I'll never forget this phrase because this variance might be important to the developer for reasons we just don't understand. It's your job to understand these things, right? And so yeah. that, that but you wouldn't expect the, the suspicion to come from on a, on a judge's part. You wouldn't expect the concern yeah. about legitimacy to come from the fact that Look, there's this thing called legislation, there's this thing called execution, and we're mixing, you know, we're mixing things that don't belong together together. That's in a separation of powers sort of model of the federal government. You can have that concern, but I don't think you'd have that at the local level if you're in an institutional context where there really isn't 
that kind of separation. And one thing, you know, that I kept thinking is well, there's reading... not there's not like with the, you know, Nestor's story about the federal government and, and maybe being at least originally or formally uniquely concerned with separating, you know, legislating, executing and, and, you know, and, and, adju- and adjudicating right. yeah. this kind of anti King George idea from the origins. Right. You don't want right. someone who is both. Funny that, you should, yeah, go ahead. funny that you should mention King George in yeah. the sense that oh, one thing I kept thinking as I was reading this paper is is it's a great it, it looks to me like there's a, a great comparative law potential in local administration and administration in parliamentary countries um, mm. that lack the separation between executives and, and legislature. The executive is a part of the legislature. Right. Uh, right. At least in the Westminster model. So there's this complex horizontal structure within the organization that right. promotes the kind of accountability that that you might alternatively promote through separation. So so instead of focusing on the these formal three branches stuff, you wind up having concerns about or could have concerns about private parties are participating in this as as officials in some way. uh, And therefore, they might lack the right amount of guidance from the legislature. So the standard needs to be better articulated. That better articulated standard will also help everyone else detect if that person is acting in some improperly self-interested fashion. Right. Uh, Because you could hide a lot of bad behavior in a very murky, very broad standard. Right. Mm -hmm. So you wind up addressing both of these things. But your 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 thought about how you might fix it. Right. Like, okay, I'm I'm in the city council. How do we write a better statute next time? Right. Mm -hmm. Your answer is going to be different if it's uh, my concern is with the tripartite separation of powers versus my concern is you need to tell these people well enough and in enough detail how to do it. So that we can tell if they're cheating uh, or, or acting in a self-interested fashion um, and so that they feel confident in so their own does, behavior that, that, even when they're not how, cheating. So how does, let's bring it to a specific example and maybe away from zoning and something more substantive. So, you know, we've already had the example of the FCC with a very broad mandate to regulate the public airwaves in the, in the public interest. Yeah. And what, what about a city council that gives to the Historic Preservation Commission the charge that it shall draw regulations and and this is the other kind of combination and and adjudicate certificates of appropriateness in order to promote a, a proper balance between historical preservation and development and that's the end of the charge it, that seems to me relatively comparable to the federal level but mm-hmm. we would think about that differently and i'm wondering part of what i take from this article is we shouldn't necessarily think about that kind of grant uniformly like how we feel about it whether we think there's a king george problem or a corruption problem, or a non-electoral accountability problem because of maybe too much indirection within, like, that can depend very much on the particular form, the particular kind of bird out of all these different kinds of pigeons, to <laughs> yeah. go back to the metaphor, right? I mean, what do, you, what do you think, Nestor? I think that's absolutely right. And I think the other piece is the nature of expertise. I think there is a, a suspicion that when you're giving this kind of authority to people who may not be uh, as resourced, as professional, as expert, as we at least assume at the federal level, not that, that federal agencies are without some question on that, but by and large, we assume in one ground of legitimacy for federal agencies is we assume they have the resources to do the work, to, to bring in the experts, to have the expertise themselves, to really understand the complexity of the regulatory regimes they're charged with overseeing. Uh, and I think there's some more suspicion. And again, I think it is contextual. I think it's more valid to be suspicious in some contexts and uh, perhaps less valid in others. Um, and we also, I think, need to ask 
what kinds of questions we're asking of these institutions. Because if, if you're asking of a historic preservation board to think about the aesthetics of uh, a community, um, that's, that's a very visceral kind of judgment you're asking, um, uh, as opposed to uh, the particular level of an air quality zone uh, over a large scale region. And I think there is something to, to, to having a little bit more faith, not necessarily in a democratic way, but in a participatory way that local preferences will come out. Now, obviously we need to pay attention to who gets to speak, who is in, involved in processes. There's lots of dysfunction in all of that. Not to say as well that we should not pay attention to parochialism. We haven't talked about that much, but one aspect of very local scale, and certainly my experience in affordable housing made me very sensitive to this, is local governments can be very exclusionary. Yeah. Uh, and they can prefer local residents over outsiders and make what might be at a different scale somewhat irrational or even invidious choices. But there's some advantages to scale as well. Well, let's talk. So let's assume we're a state court and we're yep. reviewing the kind of grant of power that, that I mentioned to a historic preservation yep. board. And so, so we get federalism out of it because this is, you know, one of the things you teach in land use. You have several layers of deference going on, right? Maybe one reason that we would want to defer to this delegation, we'd want to allow the delegation to occur and defer to judgments about the appropriate local judgments about the appropriateness of that delegation is, as you say, expertise. But following on the observations in your paper, we recognize that there are several different kinds of expertise. So one situation in which this could occur is where it has been the longstanding practice of this community to staff the Historic Preservation Board with community members who have PhDs in history, who are developers, you know, in other words, we, we stack it with true experts on the issues that they are asked to balance. Yes. Uh, maybe economists, maybe, um, uh, maybe real estate people who sell lots of houses and see lots of things, maybe contractors who do a lot of renovations and know the expenses of, of, of renovating and, and the harms from not, you know, one of the typical harms of, of a COA historic preservation regime is that people just let their houses uh, run down because they can't afford them to fix them up in, right. in the right way. Mm. Um, but, but as you point out in the paper and as Carol Rose, who you know, does everything well, as far as I can see. It's really, out, there's it's another, really frustrating. There's it? another kind of expertise, right? And that, that's that um, it's not that the people on the board are expert, but the pattern and practices of this community has been that they act as good mediators. In other words, the kind of people who show up at these meetings are representative and not parochial, right? And, and so they that's are, right. they, they kind of excellently run the public fora and preserve their kind of institutional history in, in the way that they're allowing the community to talk to one another about striking the appropriate balance, right? As an expert mediator would. That's and right. that's a very different kind of hat, right? You know, as an expert, I make good decisions. As an expert mediator, I help you all make good decisions, right? And, and either of those could be a kind of expertise you're looking for. Should a court look for that kind of expertise in making this deference judgment? Or is there a need for more uniformity in terms of administering a state-level non-delegation doctrine? How, 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 if we were on a court together, how would you urge me to think about that? <laughs> I, I would urge us as a panel, let's say, or uh, as, uh, if I were advocating for the court, I, I would urge a little bit more respect for that kind of expertise. I, I cite Carol's paper on planning and dealing in the paper, uh, and, and it, I thought her point in that paper was excellent. You can take it too far, but I do think mediation as a function of what local governments do, and particularly these kinds of agencies, um, is something we don't. Uh, is not visible 
to courts very easily and I think could be uh, closer to the surface and courts could pay more attention to that. I think that that's a different source of expertise-based legitimacy. I would urge us, and I do in the paper, um, to, to actually pay a little bit more attention to that. I think, uh, again, not to, to overly valorize because there are downsides to uh, having the developer on that board, right? But, but I do think there are upsides we don't often capture. And I take it that you'd also want us to be, I like this, Christian, that you're imagining us as a, as a little panel of judges. I think that's great. Because <laughs> um, it's so fantastic. It's a whole new direction for the podcast. <laughs> right. right. Um, but it's, I, I take it you would also, um, uh, Chief Judge Davidson, want us to, because you're, you know, you're assigning the opinion and you're right, because you're the senior member of the panel. Um, I, I take it that you would, you would want the opinion, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want us to think about these things and then say we weren't thinking about them or, or, or fail to explain. You'd want us to be explicit about it. So you'd want us to say things like, in the opinion, you'd want us to say things like, well, it's true that the uh, historic preservation uh, ordinance says the phrase Christian used, but it is equally true uh, that the same preservation ordinance requires that the membership of the board be representative in the following respects. And those that that fact supports the notion that there actually is more guidance in the way people exercise this discretion. Or it it shows that they're going to be better at playing this mediating role and pulling together lots of strands of the community and how it processes these considerations. You'd want us to talk about it in the opinion, right? Absolutely. And I think if there's one message I have in the part of the paper that talks about the jurisprudence, it's about transparency and intentionality. It's about being clear or at least acknowledging. I think a lot of what happens in these cases, it's very hard to tell exactly what's happening in these cases. I have some suspicion and I talk about that in the paper. Uh, I'm very careful to try and phrase things uh, as suppositions when I don't have uh, the explicit judicial language to back me up. Um, but but you get a flavor from a reading not enough of these cases about Concerns about corruption, concerns about, for lack of a better description, how rinky-dink local governments can be. Uh, and, and if that's what's really driving the decisions, then I think courts should say that. And I think often you don't see a, an intentionality about the factors that courts grapple with, whether it's the implications of structure, whether uh, if we think about uh, uh, you know, what does it mean for an agency to be nested in a council manager form of government that embeds administrative agencies within uh, a nominally legislative body? I looked very hard for any court actually acknowledging the implications of that, and I didn't really find it. There's a big body of law out there, so I might have missed it, but I looked pretty hard <laughs> for a long time. And similarly about what's the right level of procedural regularity, where does this anxiety about private citizens' involvement play out? And I think, you know, part of the plea of the paper is to say to courts, I may not have identified the right factors. These were the things that, to me, as I read the cases and I thought about the structure, seemed distinctive. But if we start to have courts in a case-by-case, common-law way grapple explicitly Somebody five, 10, 15 years down the road can look back and say, oh, here's how these factors actually played out. And we do, and it moved in this direction or it moved in that direction. And ideally, 
this is a dialogue. So if courts are saying we will value a more representative administrative board, if the BZA isn't dominated by one interest group, but in fact is more broadly representative, and therefore we're more likely to uphold what it does against challenge. Hopefully, the next town over when they're putting together their BZA is going to pay attention to that Mm -hmm. and have a more broadly representative board. Uh, And I think that's where a dialogue between courts and and local governments and agencies actually could play out. And I think obviously you can think of many examples at the federal level where that kind of interbranch dialogue actually works. Hmm. But you got to name it for it to actually start to happen. So there's another resource problem sort of lurking here. In the, and I, I look, I, I think what you say is uh, powerful and important. I can't help but notice, though, that there's this other resource problem lurking here, which is that the very same kind of l- less resourced machinery that we're talking about at the local level might also cause there to be much less support for people to engage in the kind of process that produces judicial utterances. Right. right. The people just don't have the money and the time to uh, deal with the, the challenge processes that are going to produce this kind of jurisprudence. Do they? No, I think that's a great point. And I also think you have to think about the docket of courts where 99% of what comes across will be business disputes and insurance conflicts and the daily stuff of state courts. And then you may get the odd challenge to some regulatory regime. It may come up every five years. And unlike the D.C. Circuit, uh, where this is all you do day in and day out, uh, you know, you're not going to have a lot of time to steep yourself in separation of powers and the implications of levels of formality. You're really just going to look at it as one among a thousand conflicts you've dealt with that year. And that's a similar resource constraint. I kind of take a leap in the paper of hoping this will happen over time. But uh, it is true that that's one aspect of the institutional context that will always be constraining. And maybe there's a role for for very serious administrative law people to help guide local courts or state courts reviewing local agency action with a little bit more training and sophistication and a toolkit to at least begin to pay attention to some of this. And it may not emerge from this toolkit, may not emerge from uh, you know, in the sort of Langdellian science of looking at the data, <laughs> which is decisions, and then you get some, you pull out of that something. It's more like, look, the National League of Cities and the Administrative Conference of the United States need to fund a, like, do a grant, have a project. Someone writes, you know, a judicial review of of local agency action, and it's a twenty five page thing which gives people principles that they can use in some examples, right? right? And so it seems kind of top down, but that can begin to bring some order to what could be more chaotic. Maybe that's not worth doing. I don't know, but it might be. I think you can imagine some very pragmatic guidelines for local agencies in terms of process, in terms of notice, in terms of record keeping. And some of this is out there. I don't want to uh, overplay the informality. Uh, I was on a board of a local public housing authority. The first month or so, I went to my first meeting and someone gave me a manual for board members that uh, that some organization had put together because there are 30,000 or so public housing authorities all over the country. And so there are pockets of this. I think it might be a really interesting project. And 
Um, you can find me on the web if someone wants to fund this. <laughs> um, uh, to think about at a slightly higher level of abstraction what best practices might look like. And I think local agencies would be very open to that. Do you mind if I take kind of a nihilistic turn here? Maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah, because That's usually my it. role. I, I, this is very refreshing for me, Nestor, because usually I do that, but today Christian's going to do that. So well, that's pretty to, cool. As you know, this is a somewhat nihilistic period in the history of our republic, it seems. So uh, <laughs> uh, maybe it's all of a piece. But uh, no, just to be a little bit of a, of a crit here, mm. I was thinking, like, you know, if I were to, uh, to try to write a follow-on to this paper and, and, and think about, you know, how to consolidate lessons learned, you know, part of it might be to kind of more taxonomize the various choices one has to make in order to arrive at a particular instance of a local government structure, and then to talk about the implications of those taxonomic pieces kind of as objects. And so, you know, these two go well together, these two don't, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. right? And to try to formalize that a little bit, which which indulges kind of my formal mathematical instincts. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but but, but at, the, at, at the expense of what I know from experience, which is my more kind of critical um, lens, right? Which is that with each of these choices, I wonder if there's a, a, a kind of a yin and a yang that is not really, you know, that is... I don't want to say indeterminate, but but nearly indeterminate. So so just take some examples of suppose we're making some choice which turns a lot on local representativeness. So we're putting kind of a lot of stock in the fact that we elect our council members. Right. And so there's some Mm -hmm. kind of admin feature which turns a lot on that instance. And of course, you know, there is a story about those people are closest to you and more easily influenced and uh, by you. In other words, you're able to get your message to them more easily than you are to your state house representatives, your U.S. House representative or the, the president of the United States, for example, because, uh, you, you know, they have presumably fewer phone calls to field. <laughs> and uh, um, but but of course, there's another story that precisely because they are more local, there are a lot more of them. And because there are so many of them, they receive less coverage than do um, larger scale representatives. And the nature of our media is is somewhat limited, uh, and the, the internet has not fulfilled its promise to, uh, in, in a way to kind of give us full scope coverage of local goings on. Right? Instead, it seems only to have fomented the focus on on larger scale national figures. And the upshot of all that is there. There's also a counter story about how people are actually f- further from their local representatives because they read less about them and they care less about them. And so the the locals are you kind of uniquely prone or not uniquely, but but especially prone to uh, interest group lobbying, right? Even more so than the national figures. I could tell that story, you know, we could say, we've already told the story about how kind of um, non-professional figures on on decision-making boards, there's a, there's a positive story about that. They're like representative, mm-hmm. you know, every, this is the same kind of thing you get with, with the kind of the term limits debate in the, in the Congress, right? They, they shouldn't be professional politicians. Professional politicians have these problems, but non-professional p- politicians have these other problems. And just kind of at a doctrinal level or at a general level, it seems to me it's going to – every single choice you make has that kind of yin and yang. And which of those stories is true may not actually be – you know, there may not be a central truth even in a particular case. But overall, like if we're trying to figure out like what are best practices in constituting a local administrative state, so much seems to turn on what actually unfolds in the history of that local area that I wonder if we could even undertake that project. You know what I mean? I do. I do think you could. It, it is a question of the level of generality, right? So you can think about norms of participation, of inclusion, of transparency that at the right level of generality would be hard to argue against. I do think you're going to get into lots and lots of uh, naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y 
uh, tricky questions. But, you know, we've done it at the federal level. We have an Administrative Procedure Act that has some basic minimal norms that agencies have to follow. And then there's a lot of variation that comes on top of that. And some, although less so now, you know, uh, than there used to be some judicial overlay of additional procedure on top of that. And we can get into OIRA and all of that. But, but at least we have some common foundation. And I think you could identify a similar set of common norms as at least a, a bare minimum for, for, for good local agency practice. I think the question of what is the identity of a local government? Is it a parochial, corrupt, uh, non-transparent, backward-looking um, suburb somewhere that, that really we should be deeply suspicious of? Or is it a creative, dynamic, cosmopolitan, immediately problem-solving, great pragmatic level of government and that sort of LaGuardia, you know, there's no Republican or Democratic way to take out the garbage kind of way. And I actually think that part of the problem is we invest too much on either side. Uh, My instincts tend to be a little bit more pro-localist, but having been in lots of of processes with local governments that are um, uh, not so positive, I, I have a healthy skepticism as well. And I'm not one of the I'm not a kind of person who says that the level of government or the structure of the institution is determinative. And I think once you say that, um, you know, I'm not going to have devolution for the sake of devolution because I buy the story about the value of getting problems solved at the level closest to the people or to the to the scale of the problem. But rather, these are all somewhat contingent institutional choices and there are real advantages and disadvantages to almost any configuration, then you're really left with a puzzle for judicial review. Then you, it's harder to, to make any baseline assumptions. And I think if, you, if it's harder to make baseline assumptions, that forces you to look at the specifics. It may cause us to, you know, in going back to the, if we were reviewing the decision of some historic preservation board, like would we cite transcripts of not only the meeting that we were reviewing, but, but past meetings to say, this is the kind of board that tends to get stakeholders involved, that tends to do this? Or is this the kind of board that that tends to exercise expert judgment? I mean, is that the kind of thing? Right. You could ask those questions. Exactly. Um, And that's a harder exercise. The federal courts, uh, at least in the telecommunications area, with respect to tower siting decisions, uh, the 96 Act made the federal role a larger role to try to make sure that that local decision makers were kind of stepping lively and moving the process along and not refusing tower siting uh, on, on illicit grounds or, or grounds they weren't even-handedly applying sort of right. to other actors. It's because members of Congress have cell phones and they move around. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, my, my point was simply that it was bringing some of the federal judicial machinery and the norms and, and right. uh, performance standards uh, such as they are that we expect from federal judges uh, and to bring into this very, to open a window into this otherwise quite local matter that might be more the meat and potatoes of state courts, if anybody. Right. That's right. Of course, Nestor points out maybe even not state courts. Maybe these disputes are so unusual relative to the steady diet of what state courts deal with that even even to them, this stuff looks a little unusual. But uh, certainly it's unusual in federal courts. And now there's this mechanism for saying, hey, they, they didn't make a decision that comports with substantial evidence. And here's my story about why. And uh, so you you get federal decisions that go on at length about what the process was like for this zoning decision. And they, it'd be interesting to see if some of the, if they, what they might make of a localist take on 
the this administrative machinery. That's terrific. I don't think I've seen that talked about in the federal cases on these telecom issues. I was going to say, since we're approaching our our conclusion, I think, you know, I think, you, you know, Nestor, I think goes without saying has more important things to do than to hang out and talk with us. Uh, but uh, Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, but but I think I this could is, do this all day. It's a lot of fun, <laughs> this is our I think this is our argument that, that we should be the Supreme Court of local land use decisions. This when we're not doing speed trap cases. Yes. Right. We should be doing local land use. You yeah. Bet. I think Let's we've made it. a strong argument for it in this hour. Is, it, <laughs> is, is there anything we've else we've appointed like ourselves? To, I mean, I guess we don't have to be uh, confirmed or anything. Th- that's true. Right. That's, I mean, it, legitimacy is only what you seize. I think that's the lesson exactly. these days. And to borrow to borrow more from English practice, I think we should. I think rather than calling him Chief Judge Davidson, we should call him Baron Davidson. Ooh. <laughs> now we're getting into very dicey territory. And we yeah, all wear, get to wear wigs. Yeah. This is awesome. Yeah, the more specific you get, the more treasonous it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have to we'll have to take a whole another hour. Uh, I think in our future we will have rich rich material uh, to deal with issues of corruption and self enrichment through the mechanisms of government power. I, I have a feeling that we're going to be seeing more of oh, that. Oh boy! Uh, so yeah, to to be continued. <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much, Nestor. Um, This has been enlightening. This has been a real pleasure. This has been terrific.